Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the great privilege of allowing us to gather together, to sit under your word together as your family, as fellow members of the family of God. Would you help us like little children listening to their heavenly father? Would you help us to have open ears, ears ready to receive with faith that which you would say to us? Illumine in our hearts that which only you can do. Show us who you are so we might worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's it. The men are pouring out of the dugout, jumping up and down like delirious 10-year-olds. The longest drought in the history of the sports is over, and the celebration begins. The Cubs have done it. That's the radio call from the moment where the Cubs won the 2016 World Series. They, they had a bit of a drought going, 108 years. Uh, I was in Chicagoland when it happened, and to say people were excited and they got a little bit of Cubs fever would be quite the understatement. Now, you could tell it based on all the Cubs shirts and hats people were wearing. You, you could certainly see it with the flags hanging off of seemingly every car that you drove past. I was a youth pastor at the time, and so... Game six of the World Series ended up being on the night our youth group was going to meet. And I thought I was going to be the brave youth pastor. I was like, yeah, we're going to have youth group as normal. We're going to pretend the World Series isn't going on. Thankfully, some adult leaders talked some sense into me. <laughs> they said, hey, you know, there's going to be two kids in you in the church basement, and nothing's going to get done. So we watched the Cubs instead and had a good time together. Cubs fever swept through Chicagoland. And people didn't have an opportunity to show their appreciation to the team as they won because it was an away game in game seven when they won. So the question started to circulate around, what is the parade going to look like when these guys get back in town? Well, it turned out it was one for the ages. An estimated five million people packed into downtown Chicago to celebrate the Cubs' victory. That's the seventh largest gathering in human history, just ahead of Rod Stewart in Brazil, by the way. <laughs> Not sure how he got that many people to come to his concert, but he's number nine. <laughs> now, why did people respond that way to the Cubs? Well, it's because how you receive someone shows how you value them. How you receive someone shows how you value them. And a city that had been yearning for a championship was so appreciative for a team that finally brought home the World Series championship for them. They just had to respond with overwhelming joy and jubilation. This morning, John's going to lay before us the coming of Jesus into this world. He'll describe him as the true light that enters the world question is how do we value Jesus how will we receive him we'll explore this passage in three chunks together and along the way we will see that the light of Jesus coming into the world means we must receive him if we are to become children of God first point we'll see in verse 9 is that the true light has arrived that's Jesus's coming Second, in verses 10 through 11, we'll see that the true light gets rejected, both by the world and by his own people. And finally, we'll see in verses 12 through 13, 
that the true light is received by those who become children of God. And all this we'll ask ourselves, how will we receive Jesus, the one who truly shows us how, who God is and how we can know him? And will we become children of God? Let's begin by looking at verse 9, the, the true light that arrived in the world. John says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This isn't the first time that John has used this theme of light and darkness. If you remember back a couple weeks ago, we began the prologue, the introduction to John's gospel, with the introduction to the introduction. And in that, in verses 4 and 5, John brought this theme of light and darkness. There, that theme was used mainly to talk about Jesus' role as creator. You remember back to Genesis 1, as God spoke the world and everything that exists into existence, he spoke when there was darkness, and suddenly there was light. Jesus also is said to be the light that illumines our minds, that the very fact that there's rationality and order to the world, that we can actually know anything. That is Jesus, the life that gives us light, even inside our minds and our consciences. But that wasn't the only way that John's gospel introduced light and darkness. In verse 5, we started to see shades of morality. Light comes into the world, revealing something of God. And yet the world resists that light. The darkness tries to overcome the light. That's going to be the dominant way that John is going to speak about light and darkness moving forward. It has to do with this concept of revelation. That if God is to be known, he has to reveal himself to us. The question is, how do we respond? You can think back to Old Testament history and realize that light and darkness were used as God showed himself to his people repeatedly. Think back just through Moses' life. He starts off and he sees God represented as a burning bush. That represents God's eternality and the, the fact that he is a holy God. He had to take his sandals off to even get near. Or what about the pillar of cloud and fire that kept the Egyptians at bay? That, that was God showing himself to be the mighty God that protected and led his people. Or what about the terrifying lightning and smoke and fire on Mount Sinai? As God showed himself to be one that you cannot approach without mediation. All those things were true representations, true bits of truth about who God really is. But now John tells us one is coming who is the true light. Now this is not to be contrasted with false light. Now maybe you're thinking of like Satan is described as an, appearing as an angel of light. It certainly is true that there are spiritual forces and entities that, that claim to show you something of God, but in fact, they are false. That, that is true. But what John has in mind isn't a, a dichotomy between true and false, but between that which is preparatory and that which is actual. You might say that he's describing the true light in the sense of the ultimate light. Uh, think about it like this. Uh, I use a Chicago sports analogy. I'll show you that I actually live in Indianapolis here. Okay, we'll use an Indianapolis one. Uh, the Colts are playing, and that means people are watching their games from time to time. I, I guess a few of you in the room do. Um, a lot of hope is placed on the quarterback in football, right? 
so Andrew Luck, most people would say, is a very good quarterback. And yet as much as you're a fan of Andrew Luck, he is definitely being measured against the yardstick of Peyton Manning, right? You might say Peyton Manning is the ultimate Colts quarterback. He brought championships. He played here for so long. John, in a much greater way, is saying as true as all of those revelations of who God was along the way, Jesus coming is the final, ultimate revelation from God, the true light that comes into the world. Now, last week, Pastor Eric showed us that John the Baptist came as a witness to the light. In a sense, John the Baptist was himself a light to people. He was revealing something of God. And yet he's described as just a witness to the light. Now, John, the, the disciple John, is telling us that the one who John was witnessing about, the very light himself, Jesus, is here. I don't know if you've spent much time thinking about this reality, but Jesus uniquely shows us God. And that, that is a very revolutionary claim in the world of religions. I was sitting on a plane on the way back, and uh, I told you guys a couple weeks ago that you might as well talk to the person on the seat next to you in a plane. They're not going anywhere, right? And so uh, I decided to practice what I preached there. So I struck up a conversation with a guy. Very interesting. He was a German doctor. Um, had a lot of questions about religion because he grew up in a kind of nominal Christian background, but he married into a Hindu family. And so I started talking to him about the gospel of Jesus and the Bible, and pretty quickly he, he said, you know, that's all wonderful. I, I think that I'd just like to take some of that and just incorporate it into what we're teaching our kids when we're teaching them about Hinduism. He was perfectly happy to just take the revelation that I was claiming about Jesus and say it's just one of many different ways to know about God. That's not what John has in mind. According to John, there's only one true light. There's only one true revelation from God, an ultimate way God has shown himself in the person of Jesus. Not only is that the ultimate light, it's also the universal light. He says this light was coming into the world. It's a light which gives light to everyone. Now, that is a difficult phrase to interpret. It gives light to everyone. It's difficult to translate and to interpret. Uh, it could be that what John is saying is something along the lines of that there is a, a spark of spiritual knowing within each of us. We all have a, a deep down knowing that God exists and that we are to be in relationship and to know and be known by him. If so, he'd be saying something very similar to Romans chapter 1. That each of us have this innate knowledge of God that nature itself teaches us. And that the fact that we reject God shows that we're actually resisting that knowledge deep within each of us. It could be, that's what he's saying. I think it's more likely that what he's saying here is that Jesus is the revelation of God to all different types of people. That there's not a single person they can say because of where they came from or what family they're from or what group they're from that the gospel of Jesus is not for them. It's describing people without distinction from all over the globe. Now, now think about it. If you were living back in the Old Testament and you were a Philistine, 
you couldn't just waltz up to the tabernacle to worship Yahweh. You were not allowed to get within a certain distance of the structure. You certainly weren't allowed inside. You weren't free to bring your sacrifices. There, there were very strict limits given to who could worship and how. The people who were outside of the nation of Israel, they were brought in to worship God. They're brought in by assimilating into the nation. You can think of like Ruth marrying in to the family of Boaz. But not so now that Jesus is here. Now as the gospel is preached, it's held out so that anyone who would believe can come to him. There's no more distinction. Jesus is the light intended for the whole world. Now you would expect that that might be received as pretty good news. The true light, someone truly showing God to us is available. You might think people might throw a parade or some sort of celebration to receive him. But let's see what John says next, that the true light is rejected in verses 10 through 11. Have you seen the type of video on YouTube of airport family reunions? If you ever need a good cry, this is a good thing to look up. Um, it's that moment where the waiting family sometimes are holding a cardboard or sometimes they've got like uh, a picture or balloons or something. They're waiting for someone that they love dearly that's been gone for a long time to come back. And there's always that moment in the video where you see their eyes lock in. And the mom or the dad, whoever it is, comes around the bend and they see him. And at that moment, they either forget everything they're holding and drop it and make a beeline for him. Or they just get this look of joy on their face. Oftentimes, tears are shed and there's that moment of embrace. Why is that so moving? Why, why do we like a good cry like that? Well, it's because how you receive someone shows you how you value them. And when you love someone, you receive them warmly. How should the king of kings, how should the very light that created us, the light that showed us everything we know about this world and more than that, about the one who made it, how should the one who made it possible for us to know God be received? John tells us in verse 10, he says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. We have to do a little work to understand what John means by that word world. When we hear the word world, we think of either the planet Earth or every person that lives within the Earth. You might say uh, the astronauts have an incredible view of the world. They're seeing the globe hanging out there in space. Or you might say every person in the world, we're talking about every single hum human that exists. But as John uses the, the term world, as we read this gospel together, we'll see that that's not how he's using it. Dr. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, when John uses the word world, he's not so much thinking of the bigness of the world, but the badness of it. It's not so much about how many people there are in the world as how they are in moral opposition to God. World is shorthand for all of humanity standing against God, resisting him and rebelling against him. 
You can see this teased out in uh, one section very easily. This is uh, John chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip open to John 15, and let's look in verse 19. John 15 and verse 19, as Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You catch that there? The way Jesus is using world there, it doesn't work if it's talking about every individual human that's living. He's saying that he's drawing people out of the world and the world doesn't know them. Clearly, this is a group that's opposed to God versus those who are now known by God. We use it commonly in Christian circles that we describe worldly living. It's that which is opposed to God's law. So as John uses the term world, he's not so much talking about the bigness of the world, but the badness of it. And he describes here how Jesus, the irony of ironies, the creator of all that exists, including this humanity, is rejected by those that he made. He was in the world, but the world didn't know him. It's like a person standing in the airport expecting to be greeted by a loving family. Only stranger after stranger goes by, not giving them the time of day. To make matters worse, it's not just the world at large that ignores Jesus. It's those that should have known that he was coming. His people. You can see that in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, that's clearly a reference to what he'll tease out along the way of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the, the Jewish people that were entrusted with the word of God, and yet, by and large, they rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah. Now, think about all the light that they had. They were given the prophets that were sent to them again and again. They were descendants of the patriarchs. They had the tabernacle and then the temple to truly worship God. They, they were the ones that woven into their very traditions was an expectation that God would send a Messiah, an, an anointed one. They would come and set all right. And yet, as we'll discover in John's gospel, they're the ones most opposed to Jesus. They're the ones that will shout, crucify him. What we see in this part of John's gospel, even now, is a truth that we need to hear as we live in an area with so much light. Having much light is no guarantee you will receive Jesus. You can live in a place with lots of churches. You can carry very big Bibles. You can have seminaries and books. You can have Christian families without number around you, and yet none of it guarantees you will actually receive the light that came into the world. We need to ask ourselves, what are we putting our hope in? I sometimes get into a pity party thinking about how the culture seems to be shifting against us here in the States. There's a a lot to mourn that has changed within a very short amount of time. And yet, friends, do you realize that more light 
does not actually guarantee anyone comes to faith. Countries that used to have Christianity as the official religion enforced by the state now are some of the most godless places on the earth. The question is, will people receive this Jesus? And that could be done here in Indianapolis, and it could be done halfway around the world in a dark place like the Bacaw Valley. Friends, it's so easy to miss Jesus in a place with so much light. You can miss him by just getting caught up in all the other things there are to do in this world. Going from your job to your family to your recreation to the point where you never actually stop to think about what it is Jesus came to do to reveal this God to you that you might actually come to know him. You can miss him by believing in Jesus but making him into just one of many things in your life. You you think what he says is true, but Jesus isn't the thing in your life. He's just a thing. He's just one of many things that you kind of pepper around and never once giving your ultimate allegiance to him, never turning your life over to him. You can miss him by assuming because you grew up in a Christian family, because you've always gone to church, because you've always read the Bible, that that must mean you've received him. No, friends, you will show how you value Jesus, how you receive him. Those who do receive him will have something amazing happen. A miracle will happen inside him. They will become children of God. That's what Jesus shows us in verses 12 through 13. That the true light, when it's received, will make us into children of God. Of God. John uses one little word there, a conjunction, but. So glad that but's there. But, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John defines what it means for us to receive him. Receiving is believing. To receive Jesus is to hear all that is said about Jesus, to to put your trust in him and to say, yes, I believe that is true and I'm going to live in light of it. As John teases out all of his gospel, we'll see that believing means that understanding your sins before God need to be taken care of, that you need forgiveness that only Jesus can provide. It means showing that you turn away from your sin, turn away from living for the world, and instead you live for Jesus. It means trusting that you will have eternal life. Life that starts now and goes on forever as you follow Jesus. Receiving is believing. It's personal trust in this Jesus. And when that happens, well, Jesus tells us he gives us something. He says those who believe are given the right of adoption. He says there, but to all who did receive and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, in the Old Testament, there are times where God's people, Israel, are referred to as his children. You can think of Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, he says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. And then he goes on to tell them how they live in light of it. It's not uncommon for God to refer to them as his children. And yet for as amazing of a reality as that was, no Israelite in the Old Testament 
would feel that they had the right to call God Papa or Daddy. They may call him Father, a more formal name, but it's not until we get to the New Testament that we find people with that intimate sort of Daddy relationship. Jesus tells us that when people receive him, something amazing happens. God actually takes us into his family. He adopts us and lets us call him Papa. 1 John 3 says it this way, See what kind of love that the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Friends, we should never get over this reality that God and his kindness would take people that lived such rebellious, sinful lives like us and bring us into his family, call us his sons and daughters by adoption through Jesus. But that's not where the good news ends because he tells us that those who have been adopted have a miracle that has occurred. They have been born of God, in verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. One of the interesting things about Lebanon that we learned, I did not know this going in, um, Lebanon is about a third Christian. You wouldn't think that about the country on the surface. But uh, as we found out quickly once we got on the, round, uh, on the ground, if you ask someone, are you a Christian? They, about a third of them would say yes, but it turns out that's not the question that we would want to ask. Because if we're asking, are you a Christian, what we're meaning is, are you a born-again follower of Jesus, right? In Lebanon, if you ask, are you a Christian, what people are ask, think you're asking is, are you born to a Christian family? In other words, do you have Christian heritage? About 30% of the population is loosely associated with Christianity in some way. If you ask the more detailed question, are you a believer? Well, that gets to the heart of the issue. Turns out if you ask that, about 1% of the population will say, yes, I am a believer. There is an assumption in large chunks of the world that I believe in my time pastoring is subtly alive even in American evangelical Christianity. That Christianity is a faith of heritage, that you are born into it, in a sense. A lot of people, maybe they won't articulate it, but they expect that if you have kids that are born into a family of believers, well, that must mean those kids are believers themselves. You just teach them enough of the Bible, make sure they're in Sunday school enough, bring them to church every now and then, and better make sure they're baptized by the time they're 13. And then it's like a formula. You do it and it all happens, right? But John tells us that something very different is what's true of children of God. It's not by heritage. It's not by any human engineering. It's a miracle birth. He uses three negative phrases, all with this idea of how it is that children come into the world. He tells us it's not by, they were not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. All three of those are references to how children are conceived and brought into the world. Not by blood, that, that's the idea of kinship or heritage. It's, it's not by what family you belong to. Not by the will of man or not by the will of the flesh. Both of those are references to how it is that babies are conceived. 
John goes out of his way to clear up a misunderstanding that we very naturally have, that if you are born into a group that are Christians, that must mean you yourself are one. But he tells us it's not that way for children of God. They, in fact, are born of God. It's not about my decision for my children as much as I love them. It's not about any sort of evangelistic program I can come up with, although I will do that. It requires a miracle of God within the heart of each individual for them to truly receive Jesus. And when that happens, friends, when that miracle happens, you will know it. You will see the effects spilling out. As John says in John 10.10, 10, they will have a life and they will have it abundantly because they've been born again, born of God. Do you know that the gospel is really not about our response? Our response is necessary. The gospel is about what God has done. The gospel is that we were so far gone in our sins and rebellion to God that he had to send his son on a rescue mission for us. That by his giving of a perfect life, by his willingness to die on a cross and his shedding of his perfect blood, that he could wipe away a whole lifetime of sin, multiplied again over every single person that would believe that we were so far gone in our rebellion against him that this son had to pour that grace out onto us so that we might believe. So brothers and sisters, every one of us that's a Christian this morning, it's because God did it. Have you ever tried to give your testimony before and not known where to start? I'll tell you, this is where you start. Let me tell you what God did in my life. Oh, we have lots of different ways we come to the place where God did something. Some of, some of us study very deep philosophical books and come to the moment where we accept Jesus. Others of us hear it from faithful parents and grandparents from such a young age, we don't even know the moment when it happened. And yet one thing is true of each of us. We're all miracle babies. We've all been born, not of the will of anyone on this earth, but of God. If you don't know how to share your testimony, by the way, while I'm on the topic, uh, we have an evangelism class that started just this morning. It's at 9 o'clock, so next Sunday, if you want to go to it, you're excused to not be here on Sunday morning. It meets downstairs, and one of the things that you'll get to learn in that class is how do you share your testimony? And, and let me just tell you, there's no better tool that you can use as you're evangelizing than to tell people from the heart what God has done in your life. There's something authentic about it. It, it cuts through this idea that religious claims are offensive. When you're sharing what God has done in your own life, people have a very hard time objecting to it. So if you're thinking about that, I hope you are. All right, let me just encourage that class to you. Nine o'clock, you don't have to sign up. You can just show up uh, next Sunday and for the next three weeks after that. We also have to think about what this means. If uh, being born of God is not a work of man, parents, this means that it's not enough for us to aim for making good church kids. You know, there's lots of good programs for children. There's no end to the amount of literature and Christian movies and Christian schools you can put them in. Those all have a place and are all good. 
But it's a mistake to assume that because we put our kids around enough Christians, uh, around enough Christian things, that that means that they have received Jesus, that the miracle of being born again has actually happened. Your role as a parent is first and foremost to be a missionary in your house, to hold out the light of Jesus to them and to pray your guts out that God might do the miracle of saving them. Students, if you're here this morning, you need to hear loud and clear, just because you have family members that have been Christians, just because your parents are Christians, just because you grew up in church, that doesn't mean that you have received Jesus. This is something you must do yourself. How do you value Jesus? It'll be seen in how you receive him. For us as a church, this puts before us the need not just to be an influence on the culture, but express witnesses in the culture. As last week, Pastor Eric showed us, we must be witnesses to the light. And if we're going to accomplish God's role for us here in Indianapolis, we had better be holding out the gospel of Jesus and calling people to receive him. Maybe you're here this morning and you're getting the sense that you need to receive this Jesus. Friend, it's as easy as putting your trust in him. Just come talk with me afterward. I'd love to walk you through it. That miracle can be yours. A new life can be yours. But you must receive this Jesus. A true light came into the world. Rejected by so many. But he's received by some. What a privilege to be counted, counted among those who are called children of God. One of the things that was so helpful for me to see on this trip was how very different places in the world have the same need for the gospel and how the gospel has power or to save people even in the darkest of situations. There was a, one particular refugee camp we got to go in with uh, Heart for Lebanon they had uh, people that mainly had settled from Aleppo, Syria. So if you've been watching the news, you know that Aleppo has had some of the worst bombing and some of the, the, the worst fighting that's occurred in the war. We got invited into someone's house. Uh, hospitality is a really big deal in the Middle East. So for, for them to bring us into their house and receive us is a great honor for us. And it also shows them love that we would do that. So we, we accepted their invitation and went in and sat down and through an interpreter heard their story. It was horrible. The things people have lived through will chill you to the bone. There's hardly a person in that camp that has not lost multiple family members. This family's sitting there and through an interpreter we got to hear them hear the gospel for the first time. It was a, a man who grew up in Lebanon and uh, he sat down with them and started asking them their story, first off connecting with them, assuring them that they were going to continue to receive the aid that was supporting that family. And then at some point in the conversation, he turned the corner and he said, can I tell you something? You, you know the reason that I'm in this house with you right now? You know, I grew up hating Syrians. I grew up hating people just like you. Because all I knew was you basically killing us, setting off bombs, the fighting that was going on. I, I really deep down hated you. But then something happened. I met Jesus. And he changed that hate into love. 
So now I'm here in your house, and I spend more time with people like you than I do with my own family. And I'm here to tell you I truly love you because God has changed me. And let me tell you why God, how God changed me. And he went into a gospel presentation that would have fit on a college campus here in the U.S. The people in that house listened with rapt attention. Now, I, I didn't, don't know the outcome of that particular family, but I did get to meet family members, that, uh, family units that just like that one, that received the love of the workers there and then received the gospel as good news. And it had had the new life of Jesus happen within their hearts. See, friends, whether you're in Indianapolis or Bacal, Lebanon, or anywhere else in the world, the same light has come into this world. The question is, will you receive him? My prayer is that each of us, that we have received him and would have true life that's pouring out of us as a result. Let's pray.